Good evening, everyone. Uh, in a moment, we are going to turn to the book of Revelation, as Carolyn has said, uh, the very last book of the Bible, because as Roy said this morning, for those who were here, our journey from uh, Genesis to Revelation in one year is almost over. But let me ask you a question just as, as we begin. Uh, what does a good church look like? What does a good church look like? You know, today in Belfast and South Belfast even, numerous churches have met and are meeting and gathered to worship. Uh, Different styles, different denominations, different ways of doing things, different structures, different people. But what characterizes a healthy church? What are some of the identifying Features of a church that's true to this. A church that actually reflects the heart of Jesus for his church. And for me, those are, those are really important questions to ask. Actually quite challenging questions to ask. And I'm sure if I threw it open and I said, okay, tell me what does a good church look like? Uh, well, lots of you would have some thoughts to offer. And you may want to turn to various parts of scripture to kind of back up your suggestions. But in thinking this through this evening, I want us to turn to the book of Revelation. And and specifically to those two chapters that that Carolyn mentioned at the start. Chapters 2 and 3. Now don't turn there yet, okay? Because what we find in those two chapters, amongst other things, are seven marks of a true and a living church. Seven marks marks of a true and a living church. Contained within those two chapters are seven letters. They're actually seven very sharp and pointed messages to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. But what we must realize, and this is vitally important, is that although each letter is addressed to a very specific local church and context, the content of each letter is relevant to all churches, then and now. So one of the key lines and phrases that appears at the end of every single letter, every one of the seven, is this. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Not just to that one church, to the church is. Okay, so here, get you involved a little bit, keep you awake with me. Uh, Without looking at your Bibles, let's identify the seven churches, okay? So let's shout them out and see if we can work our way through all seven. So who are the seven? Whoa! Right, okay, Philadelphia, I heard there. Thanks, John, at the back. Ephesus, thanks, Jean. Smyrna. Pergamum, yeah. Laodicea. Thyatira, one more. Sardis, brilliant, very impressive. So those were the the original or the initial recipients, but, but who wrote the letters? Now, the book of Revelation, as Roy said this morning, Roy suggested there were five authors. But who wrote the letters? Well, the answer to that is Jesus via John. These are the words that would seem of the ascended Christ as revealed to John. So if you want to turn to page 1, 2, 3, 4, (laughs) that's easy. Uh, 1, 2, 3, 4 in the Pew Bibles, or if you have a Bible, if you turn, if you just look at the very first verse of chapter 2, it says this. These are the words of him 
who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And according to chapter 1, and we heard this this morning, the hymn, the person who holds the seven stars is Jesus. So, so these are the words of Jesus to these churches. And the seven golden lampstands, and again Roy drew attention to this this morning, they're clearly identified as the seven churches. If you look at verse 20 of chapter 1, that says it. And this idea of the churches being lampstands, it's a great word picture. It's a great image of the church because just as lampstands diffuse light, so Christ's churches are meant to be light bearers to a dark world. And so Jesus, who was and is the light of the world, he actually said, you now, you are the light of the world. I find that an incredible thing to be said of us. By the light of the world, that you now are the light of the world. And he urges us to let our light shine. But that is only possible as churches reflect Jesus. And so Jesus is the one who writes these letters and who speaks into each context. He is the one who has every right to express what needs to be said. It is his church. We are his church. And therefore we, we must hear from him. We must hear what he thinks. We must look to him for direction and affirmation and direction and realignment as Necessary. So as Jesus, the head of the church, the source of the life, walks among these seven lampstands, these seven churches, he sees and he observes because Jesus knows his church intimately. And in every single letter, if you just scan down it, you'll come across these two words time and time again. I know, I know, I know your deeds. I know your affliction. I know your service, etc., etc. Jesus knows. Nothing's hidden. He knows what needs to be encouraged and what needs to be challenged. And therefore, Jesus knows Windsor Baptist intimately. And therefore, Jesus speaks into our situation. But the question always is this. Are we listening? What is Jesus saying to us tonight? And as we get into this a little deeper, I've said that in these two chapters we find seven marks of a true and living church. But in one sermon there's no chance of me working my way through all seven letters or of covering all seven characteristics. And so I'm going to concentrate on just two. I'm going to look at the first and the last. The letters to Ephesus and to Laodicea. And on the characteristic, here are two of the seven marks of a true and living church. Love and wholehearted commitment. So, let's do what we often do together and stand for the public reading of God's word. So, Revelation chapter 2, and we're just going to read the letter to the church in Ephesus. So please stand with me. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write... These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. 
your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered, and you have endured hardship for my name. You have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you don't repent, I will come to you and I'll remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Please grab a seat. Now, as many of you will know, that in every one of the letters, apart from one, Jesus starts by affirming the positives. And in Ephesus, you may have picked up, he highlights three, three virtues. Three really encouraging signs of life and vitality. And the first positive is their deeds. And immediately by way of explanation, Jesus actually says, your hard work. So here we have a busy, active church. There's lots happening People are involved. There's hours and time invested. Every member is ministering in different ways. And so Jesus commends them for their diligence. He sees it. He recognizes it. And he appreciates it. And there may be some people here this evening. And you need to be reminded of that. Because you're here tonight and you you give a lot. And you work hard in this context. And at times it might feel like it's all, you know, it's just all a wee bit under the radar. It's unseen. Maybe rarely acknowledged by anyone else. And yet, Jesus knows. And Jesus sees your hard work. And he affirms it. And he appreciates it. Even at times if it seems like nobody else does. And then the second area that he affirms, is their endurance, their perseverance. It's there in verses 2 and 3. The Christians in Ephesus knew what it meant to face opposition, to live under constant threat, to be in the minority, and yet despite the hassles, despite the abuse, they never denied Jesus. They stood firm, and Jesus affirms them again. I've seen your perseverance. And again, there may be people here tonight, and, and you are up against it at the minute. And as Carolyn has said, maybe it's not physical suffering that you are going through, but you are facing opposition of some sort, whether it is ridicule or rejection or isolation or alienation because of what you believe and your stand for Jesus. And it's not easy, but again, you just need to know Jesus sees it. And Jesus encourages you in that. And finally, Jesus affirms their orthodoxy. In other words, their commitment to a biblical belief system and framework. You know, clearly there were were some self-styled apostles who had shown up and they had started teaching nonsense. 
And what the Ephesian Christians and church had done was they had listened to what was being shared, but rather than swallow it hook, line, and sinker, they had tested it, and they had tested those who shared it. And they found what they said, and they found them to be false, which is really a vitally important biblical principle whenever anybody comes and shares anything. Time and time again in the New Testament, we're told to test what is being said. Just like, in a sense, you've got to test everything I say tonight to see that it matches up to God's word. It's not just my thoughts and my opinion and my views on things. But it wasn't just their beliefs that the Ephesians were affirmed for. It was also their behavior. Look at verse 6, because it actually says, You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You see, orthodoxy... Right beliefs are important, but so is orthopraxy, right practices. These people, whoever they were, and there's all sorts of debate as to who those people were, and nobody really knows. But they had neither, neither right beliefs nor right practices, whereas the Ephesian Christians, they tested those who were coming along and speaking nonsense. And they also hated their practices. And so they had got belief and practice to be consistent. And Jesus commended them for that. And as Christians today, we must ensure that what we believe and how we behave are consistent with this. And so Jesus brings encouragement to this church for their deeds, their endurance, their orthodoxy, their orthopraxy. There's so much to be admired about this church, but there is a huge problem. There's something not right, and Jesus gently but directly and very firmly puts his finger on it he says this and these are six chilling words and they must have been whenever a church hears these things said to them yet i hold this against you you have forsaken your first love and right at the core of the christian faith is love god is and we are so loved and then we are called and then we are invited to love God with our entire beings it's the greatest command heart soul, strength mind and love our neighbour as ourselves but you know there's a real danger that we can lose this real danger That we can get so caught up and consumed with our deeds, with the hard work, with the enduring, with the persevering, with the right head knowledge, with the right behavior. And all of those things are important, yes. But in the busyness and the activity and the getting on with it, we forget what lies at the very heart of it, and that's love. It's about a relationship. And how easily our Christian faith can become duty without devotion. You see, it is possible to be busy and to hang in there and to be morally upright and to be doctrinally sound and yet possess a heart that no longer burns for God the way it once did. And I look at my own life at times and I ask, David, does does your heart burn for God the way it once did? You do lots. And I know I get paid to do lots for the church. But actually, has it just become all about duty and you forgot the devotion? 
And these Christians in Ephesus, they, they did love at one stage. Right at the beginning. But they lost it. The passion they once felt and expressed was gone. It was going. And the divine lover's heart was breaking because his love was now unrequited. The intimacy no longer existed. And, and whenever I read this letter, I often wonder why? Why? And I think there are many different ways to lose your passion for God. And again, if I, if I was to open this up and say, what are some of the reasons we lose a passion for God? I'm sure lots of different people could offer lots of different suggestions. But you know, one of the quickest is through a neglect of spending time alone together. Because like any love relationship, it requires an investment of time. And whenever that time with the divine lover in the quiet and the secret place is sacrificed or substituted, then our relationship with that lover inevitably suffers. So where is our heart this evening? Where is my heart? You know, if we were to sing that little song that I know we sing from time to time, and, I, and I, I'm never too sure what I think of it, if I'm honest. I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice. Or, or the other one that I struggle with a wee bit of them again. All I once held dear. And then the chorus bit says, Knowing you, Jesus. There is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness. And then those words, And I love you, Lord. And I know the words at times can be easy to say. But do we say them with integrity? Or, or has it become about duty and, and not devotion? Where time alone with God is, is no longer a priority because nurturing that love relationship is no longer a priority. But what I love about this letter is that Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He, he doesn't just affirm them for those three things and then say to them, yet I hold this against you and leave it at that. He offers a way back. And so if you're, you're here tonight and in a sense you, you, you know that your heart doesn't really burn with the passion for God that it once did, here, here's the way back. Here's the way to rediscover and reignite your first love. And the first is this. Remember. It's in verse 5. Remember the height from which you have fallen. In other words, go back in your mind. Go back in your mind to a time when your passion for God was so real, it was so personal, it was so tangible. And I guarantee you that many of us here tonight who are Christians can do that. We can go back in our mind to a time whenever we were passionate for God. And we should reflect on that because recalling the passion of the past can provide genuine hope for the future. And for some people that may mean going back a long time, but do I encourage you, take time this week to remember the intimacy that once meant so much to you. And then secondly, Jesus says, repent. Second half of verse 5. Repentance is a daily essential in the Christian life because every single day we mess up. We make choices that potentially harden our hearts and damage that love relationship. And nothing will stifle spiritual passion and love for Jesus more than unconfessed sin. And last Sunday morning we, we made the point, or I made the point, that Christians are forgiven. Absolutely we are. But we also admitted and recognized that sin entices and entangles us still. 
It can't now wreck our relationship with God, but it will certainly disrupt it. And therefore, we need to keep coming back to God in humility and repentance. So remember the hate from which you've fallen. Remember how it used to be. And repent. Confess that. Confess where your heart's at. Be honest with God. And then, verse 5 again, return. What Jesus says is, I want you to return to what you did at the beginning. Do you know, as you remember how you used to love and how you used to serve and how you used to worship, as you remember the passion and as you remember the energy you once had and the heart that burned, go after that again. Go after it again. Recapture it. Not out of duty. Fall in love all over again with Jesus. And as Jesus finishes this letter, he then issues a solemn warning because this matters. This, this really, really does count. Jesus says, you know, if you don't repent, if you don't return to your first love, I'm going to remove the lampstand from its place. And you're going to cease to be an effective church in a dark world. I find it one of the most sobering statements. And one of the tragic things about this, and I know many of you know it, But apparently today there are no active churches in Ephesus. Or in the surrounding modern towns and villages. Why? Well, it seems at some point people abandoned their first love and never found it again. Windsor Baptist, you know, we can be busy. And we are. And we can be committed and we can be orthodox. See, if our hearts aren't in it, alarm bells need to be ringing all over the place. And they need to ring loudly because, as John Stott once wrote, the church today has a work to be done. It's got a fight to fight, to be fought, a creed to be championed, but above all, it has a person to be loved. So let me ask you tonight, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Because that's the first characteristic of a true and living church. That its people are known as those who love Jesus. Okay, quickly. The last letter, it's probably the best known of the seven, to the church in Laodicea. And we read it in, uh, we read that letter in chapter 3. It begins at verse 14. But you know, the thing about this letter that, that I, I honestly struggle with is the image it provides us with of Jesus. It's a really uncomfortable, disturbing image. I don't know how you picture Jesus. I don't know whenever you think of Jesus, what are some of the images that come to mind. But the one that's painted here, or one of the ones that's painted here, it's distressing. It's an image of Jesus vomiting. Of Jesus spewing. Because it seems that there is nothing more nauseating than a half-hearted, bland, tepid, lukewarm Christian. It just makes Jesus sick. Now when it comes to, and I'm not going to look at this for very long, but when it comes to looking at this letter and this issue of lukewarm Christianity, do you know, it isn't difficult to send people on a guilt trip. It's actually really easy. And it's easy to leave people feeling like failures, which is something so many of us fight against. 
So that's not what this is about. What I'm about to say is not about sending anyone on a guilt trip. All I want to do is encourage us to engage with God's word and hold ourselves accountable to it. And the Christians in this place were neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm. And so how does Jesus describe lukewarm Christians in verse 17? He says, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're naked, and you're blind. The thing was, that's not how they saw themselves. They thought they were rich. They thought they were well off. They thought they needed nothing, which at one level in material terms was absolutely right. You see, Laodicea was known for its prosperity. It was the banking center of the region. It could boast of a fine medical school which specialized in the healing of eyes, and it was well known for its manufacture of cloth, garments, and carpets for the valuable wool of local sheep. Materially, yes, they were sorted. Spiritually, they'd lost it. And the one thing that the other thing that Laodicea was known for was its lousy water supply. And these aqueducts had been built to bring water from the hot springs in the north and from the snow-capped mountains in the southeast. But by the time the water reached the city, it was neither piping hot nor refreshingly cold. It was just lukewarm. And so Jesus says that that, that really describes you. You're lukewarm, naked, blind beggars and I did say earlier on that these letters were sharp and pointed and and probably there is none more sharp or pointed than this one and Jesus challenged their complacency and their hypocrisy and these self-satisfied I don't need anything churchgoers must have struggled a lot as they heard these words But what I love, and Carolyn has drawn our attention to this, is that Jesus doesn't write lukewarm Christians off. His heart for half-hearted Christians comes through here. He loves them according to verse 20. Not only does he love them, he wants to help them. And so in verse 18 we find these three words of hope. I counsel you. I don't force you. I'm not going to make you. I'm going to counsel you. I'm going to advise you. I'm going to offer you possibilities. And he says, what I do is I counsel you to buy from me. Yes, you might feel self-sufficient, but actually you need to come and get something from me. You need me. And what you need to buy from me are gold in order that you might become truly rich. And you need the clothes, or you need clothes in order to cover your shameful nakedness. And you need eye salve in order that you can see. You see, the point is this, that only Jesus can enrich our poverty. Only Jesus can clothe our nakedness and heal our blindness. Only Jesus can open our eyes to perceive a world of which we have never dreamed. Only Jesus can cover our sin and shame. And only Jesus can enrich us with life in all its fullness. And you can go in search of those things in all sorts of other places. You can try to widen your horizons. You can try to get rich quick. You can try to deal with your own sin and shame whatever way you want to. But Jesus says, listen, you need to come to me. And if their nauseating Christianity was ever going to be addressed, then they needed this gold and they needed these clothes and they needed this ointment. But how how were they going to get this? Because Jesus isn't obviously speaking literal gold here. Literal clothes. Even literal ointment. He isn't. We know that. 
So how are they ever going to get this? Well, again, Jesus doesn't leave them guessing. Jesus suggests two things they need to do. The first, verse 19. Be earnest and repent. Here it is again. And if we have become complacent or half-hearted, then the appropriate response to the challenge of Jesus is to admit the condition of our hearts and to come before Jesus with a resolve and an intention to be renewed in our commitment to him. That's what's needed. That's what's required. That's what's essential. But the second thing that we're encouraged to do is grant access Revelation 3 verse 20 is a fascinating verse. But you know something? It's often ripped out of context. The number of times I have heard it spoken to not yet Christians. And yet this is a verse written to the church. This is a verse written to Christians. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. You see, it's possible to shut Jesus out of your life as a Christian. It is. It's one of the characteristics of lukewarm Christianity, where Jesus is no longer granted access to our entire lives and every area of our lives. And so the challenge here is to surrender without conditions to the Lordship of Christ, that he is to be the master of the house, that we, as we open the door of our hearts to Jesus, that we grant him access to every room, so to speak, that Jesus has access to our finances, to our relationships, to our language, to our attitudes, to our priorities, to our thought life, to our interests, to our hobbies, where Jesus is welcomed and not excluded. You see, it is so easy as a Christian to shut Jesus out of certain parts of our lives. And where Jesus wants to influence and control every aspect. And lukewarm Christianity just keeps Jesus at an arm's length, whereas wholehearted Christianity grants him access all areas. And, and so where are we tonight? Is our commitment to Jesus vibrant, dynamic, passionate, total, or am I rather indifferent, apathetic, and lukewarm? But maybe the more important question is not where are you tonight, but the more important question is where is Jesus tonight? Have we shut him out of our lives? Or is he at the very center? And is he the fire in our hearts, the wind in our seals? Is Jesus the reason we live? You see, if following Jesus is worth anything, then it's worth everything. Two of the marks of a true and living church is people love Jesus and they're wholeheartedly committed. The question is, are those the characteristics of this church? What are the other five marks? Well, that's for another time.